We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness today is the palliative care doctor, Catherine Mannix. She is the author of a book that I read last year, with the end in mind, How to Live and Die Well. It was recommended by a client of mine who was so moved she started telling everyone about it. I felt something similar myself, and when I started this podcast, Catherine was at the top of my list of most wanted guests. So it's wonderful to finally meet you, Catherine. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you very much. It's just a delight to be here. Did you set out to work in palliative medicine, or did it find you? Palliative medicine wasn't invented when I set out to find my career path. I thought I was going to be an oncologist. And so I'd done quite a lot of work in general medicine in hospitals and in our big regional cancer centre. When I discovered that actually what was much more interesting to me than finding the cure for cancer, which largely seemed to me to be drawing graphs, was the patients who knew already they weren't going to be cured and how important their living then became to them and the detail of being comfortable enough to do the things that really mattered became part of what was important as we were getting people you know, ready to go home from hospital or seeing them in the outpatient clinics. So round about the time that I was thinking this seems very interesting, a hospice was built in my town about five blocks away from my house. So I wrote to them and said, got any jobs? So I started off working as a, as a junior doctor. They'd appointed a consultant who'd worked in a hospice elsewhere in the country. And it was called working in a hospice. It didn't have, <laughs> didn't have a fancy title. <laughs> and then later that year, the Association for Palliative Medicine was formed. And gradually the work to get it recognized as a medical specialty in which people could train and have expertise was established. So I knitted my own training scheme, which was a great joy. And I found, I arrived in a hospice and discovered I'd found my tribe. And what made you realize you'd found your tribe? That this was absolutely about teamwork, that it was about attention to detail and the detail that mattered was the detail that mattered to the patient. At the time, the language of patient-centered care was just emerging. And largely, I felt at the time that it was lip service, but this absolutely was about what mattered most to those people in the place that they chose, because the city's community palliative care nurses were based in the hospice as well. So there was a, a large number of patients under the hospice umbrella, not just the few who were in the building. And it was about attention to detail. It was that lovely combination of the challenge of the physical medicine. What's making this person feel so sick? What's causing this very particular pain? How can we get around it alongside the psychological medicine of what's making this person so resilient? What's dampened this person's usual resilience? How do we help this person to find their inner strength when they're so anxious? So it was whole person care. It felt comfortable and I felt part of a supportive and mutually supporting team. 
So give us a little bit of an insight into your journey, because I think you tell in your book a very good story about the first time you really began to get this sense of how important it was to look after people in the last stages of their life. And you met somebody called Sabine from the French Resistance. Tell me about Sabine and your experiences. Sabine, wow. Sabine was a French woman in her 80s who had been a member of the French Resistance, married the British airman who'd parachuted in to help their cell and had lived in England since the end of the war with an almost impenetrable French accent. She was an absolute delight, but in a kind of slightly terrifying way. She was glorious and slightly aloof, very self-contained. And so when she told one of the nurses one day that she was afraid, That was a really big deal. And I think it's interesting that that conversation itself took place while the nurse was doing her hair and Simone's hair was always beautifully done. And so they weren't looking directly at each other. They had eye contact through a mirror. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of slight one step removed of having the conversation was what allowed this person who usually was so self-contained to actually talk about her emotions. And when she told the nurse that she was afraid and she was afraid of pain, the nurse did something really, really important, which was not to say, please don't worry about that. We'll make sure you haven't got any pain, you know, and put a lid on it. She left the lid off and looked in the box together and said, tell me, what are you afraid of? And if you were to have that pain, what is it about that that is so particularly frightening for you? So she unpacked it and what this Catholic French lady, or maybe I should say it the other way around, French Catholicism was part of her makeup. Her belief was that should she be overwhelmed by pain on her deathbed, she would despair and fall into what she believed would be a state of mortal sin. So she would then die in a state of mortal sin and not be able to go to heaven. And how would you know that unless you spent time unpacking it? You absolutely couldn't guess that, could you? No. So the fear was not just of not going to heaven, but her husband was in heaven. Her husband had died about 10 years previously. She was convinced he was in heaven. He'd been awake and said all the prayers with the priest before he lapsed into unconsciousness after his heart attack. And so this was about permanent separation. This is an existential, spiritual pain. And the nurse came down to the office and told the consultant who was my trainer, I was in the room, and he said, well, we need to go and talk to her about this. And just give me a bit of background. How old were you at this point? So I was in my late 20s. I'd worked in general medicine. I'd worked in cancer care. I'd probably been with several hundred people as they were dying at that point in my career, but not because they were dying, because I was a junior doctor trying to stop them from dying. That's why I would have been there. And that's what the job of a doctor was until I made this leap into hospice care. So you went with the doctor to Sabine's bedside and he did something that completely and utterly shocked you, didn't he? Yeah, he did something really, really remarkable. So the first thing was I was expecting a pain consult. So I learned a lot about lots of things during this experience, one of which was about patients and the ways we can talk to them. But one of them was really to be very humbled about myself and my self-esteem at the same time. So (laughs) late 20s, probably about the last age that we 
realize that we know everything, isn't it? The rest of life is discovering. <laughs> it's all downhill, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's all downhill after that. So she's frightened of having pain. This consultant is going to go and talk to her about pain, is what I think. He's asking me to come with him. And I'm not really quite sure why, because I'm good at pain. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, so we go along to Simone's bed. Now she's sitting up in bed and her hair is gorgeous because it's just been done. And the nurse came as well because my boss said to her very sensibly, you know, she's chosen to tell you this. And it's really important now that you're alongside her as her supporter while we explore it. So the person who was access to requirements was me. And I did understand that. I had that much humility. So the nurse sat on the chair by the bed and the consultant sat on the bed and I sat on one of those little stools. So I'm kind of low down and out of the way, but able to see. So I can see them in like a little triangle in front of me. And my boss's opening salvo was, I heard that you've been very worried about what might happen as you're dying. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that it's okay to say that to somebody. That's really, really worrying. <laughs> so I'm sitting on my stool feeling quite uncomfortable. And I think it's, it's worth remembering here that one of the reasons that my boss had such a great relationship with Sabine was that he himself came from a French family. Although he was British and fluent in English, he was fluently bilingual. So they often had conversations in French. And when they did have their conversations in French, we could see that she was flirting with him. So they had a very special relationship already. So when he asked where he should sit, she patted the bed, you know, that's Ooh. definitely where he should sit. So he's opened up with, you're worried about dying. And her response wasn't at all shocked. She just said, yes, I am. And he invited her to tell him what her fears were, which she did. And he listened very, very carefully. He didn't say, somebody's already told me all this. He listened and let her tell. And then he said, it sounds as though what you're frightened of is very much worse than what I'm expecting will happen to you. I wonder if it would be helpful to you. If I explain to you what happens, somebody's dying. And that really fried my brain. You know, what? Why did it fry your brain? Well, how could you? How could you describe dying? Because every death is different, thinks, you know, 20-something-year-old me. And that's because every death when you're a junior doctor is different, that this person's oxygen levels are dropping and this person's blood pressure is dropping. And this person's temperature is rising and this person's kidneys are going off. So when you're really close to the medical action at a death, you're very focused on what's going on that you might be able to put right. So what happened was an absolute masterclass. As he said to her, well, the thing is that when people are dying, it doesn't really matter what the illness is they're dying from. The process that we see is very similar. That's very profound, isn't it? It is. And I'm still sitting on my stool thinking, is it? So he then continued by saying, so the first thing that we notice is that people are weary. People have less energy and any serious illness does that to us, whether we're dying from it or not. Anybody who's had flu, anybody who's listening who's had flu has had that experience of just being so tired that you can't get out of bed. Or you might manage to get as far as getting the kettle on, but you need another 10 minutes snooze before you could make a cup of coffee or whatever. So he talked to her about weariness and how the antidote to weariness is rest and sleep and that sleep is really important and that if you're well enough to feel tired enough to need a sleep, you're well enough to wake up from a sleep because a lot of people have been told, you know, don't worry about dying, you won't be awake when it happens. So they then immediately assume that means they'll be asleep 
when it happens. So now they're terrified to go to sleep. You know, they're kind of in meerkat mode, forcing themselves to stay awake, which makes them more tired than they need to be. So he, he said to her, you know, sleep is your friend. Sleep is really important to you now. And you may already have found that you're spending more time asleep during the day. And she said, yes, I am. And he said, oh, good. Okay. And I'm on my stool thinking, how can you say that's good? This is, this is so uncomfortable. And he said, that's good because what it shows us is that you're already following the normal pattern. So now what I'm going to say to you is the subtext is part of the rest of that normal pattern. So as time goes by, he said to her, what we find is people sleep more and are awake less. And when they're awake, if their illness isn't affecting their mind or their brain, then when they're awake, it's them. And we can chat and they can enjoy snacks if they feel hungry. Lots of people don't feel hungry. That's okay too. And as time goes by, we find the person's awake less and less and asleep more and more. Does that sound as though that's tolerable to you? He said to her and she she said, well, yes. He said, so then the next thing that happens is a thing that we notice, but the person it's happening to doesn't notice. And I'm on my stool thinking, oh. What's this then? Ooh. Ooh. And he said to her, so it's that while they're asleep, there are periods of time when we cannot waken them. So maybe a visitor comes or it's medicine time or there's a phone call and we go to wake the person up and they are completely unconscious. They're not just asleep. They're in a coma. And then gradually that lightens and they waken up again and they tell us they've had a nice sleep, but we know they weren't just asleep. So what we know is that people don't notice when they become unconscious. They don't experience it for themselves and it isn't frightening for them. But we also know that if they are having regular medicines to take away pain or nausea or other symptoms, we might not now be able to waken them reliably at medicine time. So when that phase of dipping into unconsciousness arrives, we generally change the way we give people their medicines so that they won't miss a dose and then wake up with all of their symptoms having come back. And they then had a completely unnecessary French people's conversation about the use of suppositories because (laughs) obviously we use mainly subcutaneous or or these days we can use patches on people's skin, but just ways of getting drugs in that help them to stay comfortable without them needing to wake up and swallow them. And so his use of humour during this conversation about the most important thing in the world was also really interesting that they could divert off and have a bit of a, a silly French conversation about these British people not liking suppositories <laughs> was, was so entertaining. So he said, as time goes by, what we find is person is sleeping more, awake less, dipping in and out of unconsciousness while they're asleep until eventually the person is unconscious all of the time. And then he said the next change happens. Now, by now, she is sitting right up. Her eyes are locked on his eyes. She's absolutely in the moment with him. This isn't a difficult conversation for her. She is absolutely entranced by this information. So he explained that during this period of being deeply unconscious, the only part of your brain now that still is working is the part that works the breathing. And so the breathing now is just reflexes. And it moves between fast and slow and between deep and shallow. And sometimes people breathe out through their vocal cords. They don't know they're doing that, but they make a bit of a noise. And he made the noise. And he said, you know, if your nieces and nephews are around the bed when that happens, we'll 
be sure to explain to them that that isn't groaning. It isn't trying to speak. It's a sign of being completely unconscious, so unconscious that the person can't even feel their throat. And at other parts in that breathing cycle, it might be that it's reached a point where it's going quite quickly and also quite shallow at the same time. That could sound like somebody's panting, that they're struggling to breathe. And again, we will explain, we'll check and we'll explain that this is part of the breathing cycle of deep unconsciousness and it doesn't mean the person is distressed or breathless. And the cycles move backwards and forwards, shallow to deep, fast to slow, until eventually the breathing is slow with quite long pauses. And then eventually there is an out-breath that just isn't followed by another in-breath. It's as gentle as that. So there isn't a sudden rush of pain at the end. There's no feeling of fading away. It's very, very gentle. And so she's absolutely, she's holding his hands. And I'm on my stool thinking, oh my goodness, I have seen this so many times. This is absolutely right what he's saying. And yet I've never noticed it. I've been so busy with the detail that I haven't sat back and looked at what is going on and that it is something that is predictable, that there is a sequence that we can describe. And she is so comforted that she kisses his hands and then tells us that actually we can go now. (laughs) (laughs) At this precise moment, I have uh, my eyes are moist because why aren't we told these things? Because reading your book was the first time I heard this. Yeah, and hearing him have that conversation was the first time I heard it. And I've been through medical school, and I realize now, being trained to save lives, seeing death as a thing that we need to avoid at all costs, and the idea of bedside companionship for people who are inevitably dying and tailoring their experience so that it's the least uncomfortable for them that it can be. And that's really very specific. Some people would rather be more sleepy. Some people will tolerate lots of symptoms to remain as clear-minded as they possibly can. So it's not what we think is the best death. It's what they tell us is the best death. Again, how would you know that if you don't have that conversation? So that experience was a complete game changer for me. That completely opened my eyes to a different way of being in the presence of the idea of dying as well as being in the presence of death. So you weren't afraid of death. This is what you say. You were in awe of it. Can you tell me what you mean by that? I'd had a little bit of a crisis during medical school when I first got onto the wards and realised that the people who had the relationship with patients that I had hoped I was going to have were not the doctors. (laughs) were the nurses. I'm going to tell you a story about that later, but carry on. So I found myself very distressed that the relationships that medical students can have with their patients is quite close because we've got lots of time and we're not rushing from one person to another. But then seeing people who I'd clerked in to practice clerking on a haematology board where in, you know, the early 1980s, treatments for leukemias were not nearly as good as they are now. So many of these people I got to know quite well over a period of weeks to a few months, and that would be from presentation to death for those people. And the nurses were really kind to me and brought me in alongside when they were looking after my patients who were dying, who were not, of course, my patients at all because I was only a student. But they realized that I wanted to be 
able to make a contribution to their care. And so what they taught me was how to be with people, whereas what medicine was teaching me was how to do things to people. And it meant that I was able to be alongside people's care during their dying, in and out of the room, you know, not mistaking myself for an important member of their family, but able to be witnessing the process as it evolved, which was another thing that was coming back to me when I was listening to the conversation with Simone. Yes, I have seen this. I have seen this. And that moment of transformation from alive to not alive anymore always seemed to me to be an awesome thing. What is it about us that changes? What is it that means there is a person here and then the person is absent? And it didn't seem to me to be frightening. It seemed to me to be something to postpone until as late on in my own life as I possibly could. I don't mean I was kind of, I I developed a death wish, but the idea that dying is frightening, I'd already realized that it need not be. But I have never, ever got past that sense of awe of being in a room as somebody actually dies. I had that experience when I was in my late 30s. My uh, partner was dying and it was terribly obvious. In fact, it was here in Germany because my partner was German. And when he was ill, he went back to Germany. And the doctor told me, sometimes when we stop treating people, they get better. And I sort of looked at him as if he took me for a fool because... <laughs> and so it was not only was it impossible to have that conversation and there was nothing explained to me, but it was actually left up to a nurse a couple of days later to say, look, I think we're coming towards the end now. And so, you know, if you want to tell his family and all those other things, and I could then invite these people round. Without that, I wouldn't have known. And in fact, after my partner died, I went back the next day to collect a few things from the hospital room. I saw the doctor further down the hallway and he deliberately turned away and went the opposite direction from me because he was frightened. I don't know what of, but it wasn't a very human response. You know, you could have just even nodded at me rather than turning away. That was in the 90s. And this was in what was called an anthroposophical hospital. So they were much more interested in treating the whole person, but yet they still couldn't have those conversations. I mean, it is quite shocking, really, isn't it? It is shocking. And yet somehow we've lost some of the apprenticeship from medicine. Medicine's become about knowledge, about knowledge acquisition and practical skills. But the practical skill of communicating I think is in danger of drifting. And I think that I could not have learned how to talk about dying by reading it in a textbook. At the very least, I would have needed a video of a master practitioner in action. But actually to sit at that bedside, to literally, as I now reflect on it, sit at their feet Mm. and have nothing to offer but attention, you know, to be humbled by the idea of death, I think is part of then being able to talk about it. It's not an enemy, it's not an opponent, it simply is. And we are mortal, and can we talk about that? Why can't we talk about it? I mean, you and I are talking about it quite calmly, and the world hasn't ended. So why can't, why can't we talk about it? 
isn't it really interesting? I'm trying to work that out. And I'm still trying to work that out. So I've got lots and lots of feedback from the book saying, yes, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. I was completely traumatized as deathbed because nobody had explained to me. And when I heard the noises, I thought my beloved person was choking, drowning, sighing, in pain. So lots and lots of letters from people saying, reading this has made me review what happened and has given me a peace of mind that I've been looking for for 5, 10, 20 years. So, you know, that's really not okay. No. We really have to be able to prepare people who are going to be at deathbeds for the experience because it is predictable and we prepare people who are going to be at birthbeds in a very particular way. So why can't we use similar language and a similar train of thoughts to work alongside preparing for the end of life just as we prepare for the very beginning of a life? But I think one of the difficulties we've got is that you and I are talking to each other by consent and by arrangement, but say we bumped into each other in a cafe and your partner at the time was very ill or had recently died. And there was another person who might be a vague mutual acquaintance with us. Now I might want to say to you, look, I'm just so sorry I heard what happened to your partner. And I heard that he died. And I just wonder how you're doing right now. And we drink our coffee and you tell me how you are. And then you go off to the loo. And our pal says, I cannot believe that you use the word died in front of Andrew. There's a thought police thing going on where I'm worried that I might upset you. You're worried that your upset isn't for public consumption. Either you don't want to be exposed as upset or you don't want to upset me. And we're both worried that this person's going to have an opinion. And I'm possibly worried that I'm going to fall apart in the middle of a cafe, which is probably somewhere which I'd rather not fall apart. I mean, I've reached the point where I don't care anymore, but that's 25 years later. So it's slightly different. But we are terrified, absolutely terrified. And each family has a different set of myths. I mean, my family believes that talking makes things worse, for example. That's the sort of the basic thing that would be put across the door of our house. I mean, as you can imagine, it's no surprise that I became a therapist and spent all my time talking about difficult subjects with people. As a kind of reaction, yeah. But the rest of my family, you know, just curl their toes up at the fact that, you know, I'm prepared to talk about these topics. I said to my father, who is now 90, about to become 91, took me quite a bit of courage to say this. I said, are you afraid of dying? And he said, I've never really thought about it. Have you? And I said, well, I don't think about death every day, but on a fairly regular basis. And I was quite shocked. And we then had a conversation, which was, I think, the conversation everybody has. They said, I'm not afraid of being dead. It's the dying that is the frightening bit. Uh, I didn't really have the words for that, but it's extraordinary how we don't want to think about it, even when we are, by all maths, towards the end of our life. I think it is extraordinary that we have that universal experience of which we're aware. There are only two universal experiences, and most of us have no awareness of having been born, but we know where we're going. And It's really interesting, isn't it? It's this combination of, am I going to distress people who I don't want to distress by talking about it? Will I distress myself 
by thinking about it. What if I go there and then I discover that I am terrified and then I can't get away from that? I've faced it. And for the rest of my life, that inescapable terror is waiting for me there. So I think the kind of, you know, when it's difficult to get into a swimming pool because it's cold and you Mm. just put your toe in and then you know that you're going to have to do this thing by slow creep and it's awful and every Mm. step is awful. Whereas if you can just jump in, you have a moment of almost exhilarating, terrifying coldness. And then suddenly, actually, it's okay. I'm wet all over and I'm dealing with it. And I wonder if it's a little bit like that for Mm. all of the taboos, you know, the taboo of talking about sex, the taboo of talking about death. The menopause. Oh, yeah. So, so, and it's interesting, isn't it, that so many of them are bodily things that we're frightened of the power and the changes in our own bodies. One of the things that I heard at my partner's deathbed that was very distressing for me was that sort of sound of almost the liver had failed and the fluid from the liver, ascites, I think it's called. It was swelling up his legs and his body. And it felt like when I was listening that his lungs were full of this fluid now and he was fighting for breath, sort of almost like gurgling, as of being drowned. And I got the message from your book that my understanding of that was entirely wrong. So there's a thing that happens once you can't feel the back of your throat. So just if you just think about the backs of our throats for a moment, it's a really sensitive area. That you know if you get a little toast crumb, a little drop of coffee at the back of your throat, you will cough, you will swallow. If you can't move it, you will gag, you will retch, you will, your body will work really hard to get rid of anything that's touching the back of your throat. And that's a primitive survival reflex because the airway is at the back of the throat and we mustn't let it get blocked or we die. So it's not that we can control that coughing, swallowing, retching. That's absolutely a a reflex. If something touches the back of our throat and our brain senses it, that reflex kicks into place. And gradually, as we become more deeply unconscious, whatever the cause of unconsciousness, this isn't only in dying, as we become more deeply unconscious, we lose consciousness even of those really, really sensitive areas. Now, at the same time as that, A person who's being looked after while they're dying is usually being nursed, lying on their back, propped up a little bit by pillows, maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit from side to side. Any other person who becomes deeply unconscious, we turn on their side and we roll them slightly forward into that first aid recovery position. And that would make any little bits of fluid at the back of the throat run forwards and dribble out through the lips rather than just lie at the back of the throat. So it's only Ah. during dying that we see a person who's no longer got sensation at the back of their throat, lying with the back of their throat, having, you know, gravity, pulling any little bits of fluid that are around. And then let's think about the fluid. So our mouths may be making saliva. If our mouths are no longer making saliva, if somebody's mouth looks dry, then there's good nursing care to make sure that the teeth and the lips are are moistened and bits of that fluid dribbles backwards. They were doing that, yes. And so what ends up is a little pool of fluid at the back of the throat. Now we know what air does in liquid, it bubbles. Mm. So what's happening is the breathing is still moving backwards and forwards and air is being drawn through the back of the throat in and out and it's now having to move through this film of fluid. The fluid isn't obstructing it, it's not like a big solid thing like a peanut. So 
the air is bubbling and what we're hearing is that bubbling and it sounds as though they're bubbling from the depths of their being, doesn't it? It yes. sounds as though it's coming up from their lungs. Now, there are conditions in which people's lungs do get fluid in them, particularly people who have heart failure, that might happen. But it's unusual, whereas this funny rattling noise, the death rattle is what it gets called, is quite usual. And it troubles people around the bed because it's so bizarre. It's such a weird noise because we never normally hear it. It was like torture sitting there listening awful, to it. Awful, awful. And yet what is needed is somebody to come in and say, do you think this person you love is comfortable? Well, no, we don't because listen to this breathing. Are they drowning? What's going on? Okay, well, let's have a listen for a moment. Do they look as though they're struggling? No, no. And actually now, so now we look at them, actually, although they're making an awful lot of noise, they're not frowning, they're not coughing, they're not gagging. It's just every breath has this raspy, gurgling, cluttering noise. Yeah. And then they breathe again and the same thing happens again. They don't seem to be making any attempt to clear it. Okay. So let's think about how we would be if we were lying there and there was fluid sufficient to make that noise in our throat. Well, we would be sitting bolt upright. We'd be coughing. We'd be wretched. Yeah. So, so first of all, let's just all take a moment to notice that this person does not look uncomfortable. So what's going on here is this unconsciousness of no longer clearing the throat, no longer swallowing that fluid away, because they are completely unaware of it. So the people who are uncomfortable in this room are us, because this noise is unusual and it's troubling us. But this noise is telling me that this person who you love is actually so deeply unconscious that they are beyond noticing that there's fluid in the back of their throat. And millions and billions are spent on medical technology. It costs nothing to just explain this to you. And I mean, the difference that would have made to me would have been extraordinary. Yes, and, and to so many families. And it's one of the things I get lots and lots of letters about. So has sitting at all these deathbeds in any sense changed you? Well, first of all, let's just think about sitting at deathbeds. I have sat at a few deathbeds, but they've been my people, not my patients. So I'd be the doctor that people would go to that when you work in palliative care, the funding is such that there's maybe half a doctor a week. (laughs) And for that half a doctor, there's this team of nurses and the associated therapists and everybody else who each are carrying their big caseloads. So you know that if things were going wrong, you'd be there. And you're doing rounds with them to check how people are. But I haven't sat with each of these people as they've reached their last breath. But I've certainly been in and out of the room. Yeah, that's what I mean. And I think that's an important thing to say to people, that it means that when I'm talking about dying, I'm not talking about my dear people. I'm talking about somewhere between ten and 15,000 human beings who just kind of... You know, every time I do the maths, Andrew, I think that that must be wrong. That can't possibly be right. But I've I've done it by just kind of working out how many people a year did the hospice look after while I was there and what proportion of those went home and what proportion of those died. And a lot of people don't realize that going home is at least as likely as dying when people go into a hospice. So that's Mm -hmm. worth saying. Or the nurses who were working out into the community or the last decade of my career, which was almost entirely in a hospital palliative care team. So those nurses were looking after huge numbers of patients and I'm kind of in and out and, you know, I still can't believe the numbers. Anyway, being there, seeing dying, 
I've seen maybe half a dozen deaths where I've thought, well, maybe a dozen, a small number, where I thought this is horrid. You know, I Mm. really would not want this to happen to me or to a person that I love. It's taking them a long time. They don't seem to be settled. This is just awful. But if that was maybe 12 out of about 12,000, doesn't mean it wasn't awful and isn't awful in the memory of the families of those 12 people. But it also means that we have to expect what is expected, which is not that. That ordinary dying is generally okay. And the more I've seen of it, the less and less I've been afraid of what's likely to happen to me or to my family. And are the people who are having the bad deaths, I'm doing the little inverted commas there, is it partly because they're frightened or is it just the medical condition? That's a really great question. And partly because they are less usual. Maybe there are not enough of them to really frame an answer to that. But certainly people who are struggling with a sense of injustice about their death, with an anger as they're approaching it, very often have a more difficult time than people who've been able to get to a place where they say, well, I'm never going to welcome it. You know, it's always too soon. But actually, it is what it is. And how can we make it okay? The word I want to use, it's a natural process. Yeah. So I really want a nice television series, a little bit like the British drama series called The Midwife, or, you know, One Born Every Minute, you know, called The Death Wife. Let's because these are, these are tender, moving stories of witness. I don't just mean mm. my stories, everybody's deathbed stories. And when you get to a certain age, you have been there. Yeah. And what's interesting, I think that's really important. What's interesting for me is that when you get to a certain age, you've been there, that certain age is getting for most of us later and later and later. So my grandmother, who was born in 1900, had been there several times by the time she was in her mid-30s. It's quite unusual for a person to have been at a deathbed before they're in their 50s now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's wrong that we shield children from this. You know, I think that uh, after my partner died, I could talk about nothing else beyond death for a very long time. So I was talking to all sorts of people. And, you know, I was talking to somebody who came from the Maori community in New Zealand, and they said that, you know, if somebody was dying, the children would be playing around the bed in the same way they would be playing anyway. It was not something that was put away into a, into a side room. It was a part of life. Yeah, absolutely. Maori have really got this right. And I had a really lovely trip to New Zealand a couple of years ago. The idea of the, the whānau, the extended family, being the unit, even being the decision-making unit. You know, I wouldn't be having a conversation with you about your preferences for your end-of-life care. I'd be having a conversation with you and several members of your whānau who would be helping to work out what's the right thing for us to do all together about Andrew and his illness. And you'd have an opinion, but you wouldn't have the casting vote. (laughs) And that's absolutely fascinating. And you wouldn't expect the casting vote. You would see yourself as embedded in your whānau. So it's wonderful to see societies that have remembered that dying is just the last thing that we do and that children being able to climb on the bed and give you a cuddle while you're busy doing your dying enables you to have the joy of their presence, but enables them to have the comfort of yours too. And so 
next week, next month, next year, when we're remembering you, we remember you with fondness. We don't remember a closed door with peculiar noises coming through it. And we're left to our childhood imagination in which there are dragons to imagine what on earth was happening to you on the other side of that door. I can't tell you how many of my clients have been at their parents' deathbed and, you know, nobody's explained anything to them. And they've said to their mother, for example, are you going to get better? And she says, I don't know. And that's the last words they ever had with her. And they're talking about that with me 30, 40 years later. And that's all because we're so frightened. Yeah, devastating. And how dreadful it must be as a parent of young children to have to say goodbye And, you know, I've worked with parents who've been getting ready to say goodbye. There's a story in in the book about a young woman who's doing exactly that. But what a precious gift to be able to send them into their futures safely. And yes, it's heartbreaking, but it's going to be heartbreaking anyway. We can send them out broken or we can send them out wrapped with our love and our farewell and our finishings. So have you learned anything that you will be taking to this moment yourself? I hope that I get a deathbed. I mm-hmm. think I'll feel pretty robbed if I get hit by a bus or, <laughs> you know, that, that would be after, after all this work. <laughs> but also recognising that that can happen. Yeah. So nobody in my house is in any doubt about the things that are important and the things that people often talk about around deathbeds. We hear them over and over again. People saying thank you, what they're grateful for. People putting things that have gone wrong right, making apology, offering forgiveness. Giving a blessing. I think that's a beautiful thing to do. Yes. And just what they're doing is saying, I love you. And we should leave people in no doubt if they've been precious and important to us. And that's not just our life partners and our children and our immediate family. It's the colleagues that we're fond of, that we're grateful to work alongside. It's the neighbours who we're always happy to bump into. These are all forms of love. And if we're not good with the D words, crikey, we're just useless with the L word, aren't we? (laughs) It is really difficult to tell people that you love them. In a sense, I love my clients, but I wouldn't say that to them because we have a, a very sort of narrow sense of what love is that it's some kind of a precious resource and you have to hoard it. But actually, it's a bottomless gift. But we tend to sort of, we're only allowed to love a few people. I mean, I'm feeling love towards you today for telling me these things I've been waiting so long to hear. Well, I think we've got a very limited love vocabulary, haven't we? Mm. And actually, we tend to assume that love is about people who are lovers or people who are immediate family. And perhaps a couple of friends as well. Yeah. You're allowed to love friends. And we also tend to assume that love is a feeling, an emotion. Whereas I think when we're in our therapeutic work, love is an attitude, love is a decision. That unconditional positive regard is the ground of our attention to each other during a therapeutic interaction, whether that's a psychotherapy or a medical intervention. And To decide that I am just going to be your companion in this space is an act of loving somebody. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So 
one of the advantages of joining our supporters circle and spreading the love and helping us actually helping fund this this act of love I do every week you can uh, write in a letter to us there are also all sorts of other benefits if you look on our website www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast you'll find out more details how can i help my friend who has secondary cancers and has been given a terminal diagnosis when she told me i'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news it seemed like she was shielding me rather than reaching out for help I cannot offer much that is practical because I'm housebound, but I would, however, like to be an emotional resource. Having faced the slings and arrows of fate myself, I've learned that putting on a brave face and looking on the bright side, which is how most people react, is not particularly helpful. I'm tempted to send useful articles and books, but sense that this could be intrusive. I call, but often phone calls are beyond her. I feel awkward. I don't want to do nothing but I don't want to intrude, and somehow asking what she needs doesn't seem helpful either, because I suspect that this is too big a question to have a sensible answer. What do you think? I loved this letter. What a generous, sensitive friend has written this letter. It's so thoughtful, isn't it? So it touches on so many different things. And I wanted, first of all, to just pick up on the, towards the end, this person saying, I feel awkward. And I don't want to do nothing. And we've talked about that today, that sense Mm. of awkwardness, that sense that if I start to say anything, I might make this person unravel and how much is too much. So one of the things that I've learned over the years is that rather than trying to do it all, we try and do things in bite-sized chunks. And from the rest of this letter, I'm getting the sense that the sick friend doesn't have very much energy. Mm-hmm. And that that means that maybe even sending books and articles is something that is just too big for that person to do. The thing that's in shortest supply often is emotional support, exactly the thing this person mm. wants to give. So that is likely to be especially welcome. And I'd be thinking, how could you do that in a way that doesn't require a lot of energy? So, for example, could you send very short letters? Because a letter's lovely, you can look at it when you have the time, when you have the energy. Mm. You can go back and look again. Unlike the phone call, which is a once-off, and you never know how somebody's going to be at that moment. Yeah, exactly right. So, a regular short letter, a regular card, something they can look forward to every week, maybe, that something comes for you. I like the idea of books and articles, but how do you do that for somebody who hasn't got very much energy? Can you take the nucleus of the thought from the article, say, I saw this article and it was really good and I won't burden you with the whole of it, but the thing that struck me about it was that it said this Mm. and I hope that's useful for you. And if it's useful for them, that's lovely. And if it's not useful, they don't have to take it. It's just your offering. I tell you what would be lovely, unfortunately it's not going to work in this case, is just actually somebody sitting at the bedside and reading to you. Yeah. There's something very, very lovely about being read to. It doesn't have to be, you know, Winnie the Pooh it could be. It doesn't have to be anything particularly um, deep, but just that sort of attention. And you're actually saying, I care, I'm here. And you can put the book down if the two of you want to talk, but you've actually got something to do 
And it sort of reminds you, if you've had that great fortune of being read to when you were a child, and there's something very comforting about those things. I think that's really true. And it's something we talk about at the bedsides of dying people for their visitors, is to help the visitors to relax into being a visitor. Because in my house, we're very fond of each other, but we don't sit two feet apart from each other, hold hands and stroke each other's brow all day. Mm. I would stab somebody who tried to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, here's this last part of living, and and we're all clustered around the bed. And particularly for a person who's maybe a little bit breathless, whatever their illness is doing to them, you watch the whole family breathing for the person at the bedside. So, learning how to be present, you know, I'll say to families who are visiting in the hospital, bring your slippers, bring your newspaper, position the chair beside the bed in a place where if you lift your eyes up, you can see the person and make eye contact with them. And then just ignore each other the way you ordinarily would. You know, do your knitting, do your crosswords, read the newspaper, inhabit the space together. And every now and again, you can just smile at each other. You can touch somebody's hand. You can say, okay, I'm here. And that's the same as the person who brings you a cup of tea out to the shed because you're mending the shelf and you're out there sawing the wood. You, you, you do your own thing in your own space, but you have these moments of contact. So being at a bedside, I know this isn't helpful for this person who's written who's not able to travel, who's housebound, but being able to be at the, at the bedside is helpful. And I think that text messages offer us a virtual way of being at the bedside. To be able to send a message just to say, I've just got up. It's sunny here. It's gorgeous. I hope it is where you are. How's this morning? And attach a photograph of the view there, because if you're in a hospital or a hospice or somewhere else like that, you're not seeing very much of the world. So a photograph of something that somebody else is seeing and being the eyes for them could be really rather nice. Yeah, really lovely. And so I don't want to ask what she needs because that seems unhelpful. And it and it is difficult for people to say what they need, but it's easier for them to respond to an offer. Would it be useful if? Right. So would it be useful if I make contact with you a couple of times a week. Would you like me to be helpful in contacting our other mutual friends about how you are? If you haven't got the energy to talk to everybody, I can take a message and distribute it to everybody. Mm, That's very useful, isn't it? Yeah. So it is useful to ask, what would you like? And if they don't know the answer, then that's fine. Then you can start to make little suggestions of, I could do this, I could do that. And again, if it's a text message or if it's a letter, you can send a list. These are the things I actually could do. You could choose any of these and I'll do my best. I love that idea. Mm, On the phone, that's really hard. Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do this? It's kind of, it's exhausting. Whereas if you send the list, the person can then just look through it. And even if at the end of it, they say, actually, do you know what? I'm okay, but thank you so much for the thought and the love that's gone into making that list. And the bravery, because it is a brave thing to do, shows the love as well. And so even if the answer is no, I think the bravery that's been shown and the willingness to go into this difficult territory will shine through. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I think those things that we hear at the end of life, that's one of the things to stick in your cards. Thank you. I'm sorry. I forgive you if there are things about those, but I love you. Thank you for being my friend. This friendship is really precious to me. Because you put these things in the letters to their nearest and dearest of commiseration. You say, you know, I'll always remember their hospitality or their 
sense of humor and all those other things. I mean, we should possibly be telling these things to our, our loved ones, the people that we love um, who are dying as well. You know, do you know, I, I heard a lovely thing last week of one of my collaborators who's a young widow, and she was talking about when her husband was dying and his mates were all planning because it was quite close to when he was actually about to die. They were planning which of them would speak at his funeral and what they would say. And she persuaded them not to leave it till the funeral and go and visit him and say it, tell him. And that's exactly right. If you're wondering what to say, think what you'd say if you were asked to speak at the funeral and then ask whether it needs to be a secret from the person you're talking about. Yes, I have written the eulogy for my father, which I will deliver hopefully some long time in the future. Mm. And he was perfectly happy with going through the facts because, you know, when somebody's very old, there's nobody else you can ask about the facts, you know. And I said, well, this is the point where I'm going to say some nice things about you. Would you like to hear what they are now? (laughs) And he said, no. Oh, because a feeling might be expressed. Exactly. (laughs) So fine. Would would you send it to him? Would you write it down and send it to him so he hasn't got to be have the awkwardness of acknowledging it in front of you? Yeah, that, I mean that. I mean, that was originally was the idea was that I was going to give the full version. I was just doing the checking of the facts hmm. stuff because he's very very concerned that the facts are correct and that there's no confusion and everything else like that. So you know that was the main task. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, and then I'm going to write some other nice things. Would you like to see those? And I think if I had sent it, he wouldn't have been that upset, but it just it just amused me. I'm now going to say nice things about you. Most people are very happy to hear them, but but we get terribly embarrassed. Actually, taking compliments is quite a quite a skill. It is. It is. And and we've been brought up to not show off. And mm. and it somehow feels receiving praise is very hard, isn't it? So there's something very important about acknowledging death to have a meaningful life, I feel. What do you think? I think absolutely right. I think that the very fact that we are mortal makes living precious and that when we lose sight of that, things drift, don't they? We all know that when we're not our best selves, time kind of drifts. And then you look back and you think, I I wasted that time. I, I could have enjoyed that time. I could have made use of that time. I think it's really important to see that one of the ways we can use time is simply to be present in it and enjoy moments rather than have written a book or built a bookcase during that time. But being is the thing that is precious. So you have been my witness on The Meaningful Life, so I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? My life is made meaningful by being able to bask in several things that just make me feel that it's glorious to be alive. One of those is my relationships with my dear people, my my closest people, and my beloved family and friends. One of those is being out in nature, being just able to see the changes as nature cycles, being able to look at a twig in the middle of winter with nothing happening and know that inside it, spring is waiting, just as much as watching it happening during the spring. 
And one of those is just being able to center myself and be able to think, to be able to notice that this is now and it's really happening. And isn't it amazing to just be alive? I feel that I'm very, very fortunate. Fortunate to be alive. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. If you're a member of our supporters club, the conversation doesn't end here because Catherine and I are going to talk about what we've learned from this encounter. And she's going to share with me three things she knows to be true. But for the time being, Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.